May it be your will, Adonai, our God, that a mishap not come about through us. And may we not stumble in a matter of Torah and cause our colleagues to rejoice over us. And may we not say regarding something which is Tamei that it is Tahor, and not regarding something which is Tahor that it is Tamei. And may our colleagues not stumble in a matter of Torah, and we rejoice over them. For Adonai grants wisdom from his mouth, come knowledge and understanding of God. Unveil our eyes that we may perceive wonders from your Torah. Amen. Okay. Um, Rules of the game, just as a reminder, it's not exactly level, but it's much closer. It's good, yeah. So, so everybody just, and there it is. Okay, so um, if we use Hebrew, turn your head, cough, no, turn your head and say what that is in English to the person next to you. If they know, great, they're going to say it to the next person, and eventually we'll hit somebody who didn't know. Um, I want to talk about, love you in yellow, by the way. Um, I want to talk about stringing pearls. I mentioned it last week, and I'm not sure that everybody understands what I mean by that. So I want to, uh, I want to walk through that. So uh, with that in mind, uh, I'm going to bring to your attention some, uh, some references that we haven't used before. By the way, it not only does not bother me if you take notes, it makes me feel really, really good. But if you don't want to, that's all right. I'll talk about you quietly to someone else. So, what I'm, what I'm looking for uh, now are some of the, I would say, three most poignant Talmudic references or sage references uh, that we have ever encountered um, as we've been studying. The first one comes from Exodus Rabbah. That is not in the Talmud. Who can tell me what Exodus Rabbah is and more specifically the Midrash Rabbah? Would you hand me the large book behind you, please? Who can tell me? It's commentary on, on Torah. What does it mean? What's, what's, what is, when I say the Midrash, I'm speaking of Rabbah means great, big, whatever. Okay, so this is the, this is the bottom line, right? This is the commentary that the sages have put together, and it's comprehensive. It's extraordinary, and if you have this large one from Art Scroll, it's, uh, it's great. Because you not only get the Midrash Rabbah, but you also get their notes as well. So if you're not familiar with that, you can pass that around and have a great time with it. So what do we have? Midrash Rabbah is actually all of them, right? So if I'm talking about Exodus Rabbah, it's the Midrash Rabbah on Exodus. Exactly right, okay? So Exodus Rabbah 35.4. What's that about? Okay. Is it? That's the question. Chris said that Exodus Rabbah 35.4 is the commentary on Exodus chapter 35 and verse 4. Is that true? Yeah. No. 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 I think it's just the reference. It's a chapter and reference within that. 
Okay? And in fact, you can see, I'm going to read Exodus for about 35.4, and I put in red why we're remembering this. Another explanation of, here it comes, and thou shalt make the boards for the tabernacle. That's the quote from the Torah in Exodus. And he's saying, why does it say for the tabernacle? Should it not rather have said into a tabernacle? Thou shalt make the boards into a tabernacle. That's a great question. That's a great question. So, he answers it. Rabbi Hoshaya said, because the sanctuary stands as a pledge, so that if the enemies of Israel become deserving of destruction, it would be forfeit as a pledge. I have no idea what that means, and I don't really care, because that's not the part of the Exodus or Bob that I want to bring up. But it's a good stuff thing to learn, right? Moses said to God, because the whole idea is the tabernacle, right? And that whole sanctuary. Moses said to God, Will not the time come when Israel shall have neither tabernacle nor temple? Did that time come? When did that time come? In 70 AD. Or actually, AD 70 is really, it's the year of our Lord, 70, right? But we don't want to use AD because that causes our brothers in Judaism some angst, right? So what, do we, what would we rather say? 70 of the common era, yes, right. That's when the temple was destroyed and the tabernacle was done once they got into the land. All right. Will not the time come when Israel shall have neither tabernacle nor temple? What will happen with them then? Great question. Moses is really concerned. Of course, the sages are saying that Moses is this prophetic gift. He's looking down in time. And he's like, well, what are they going to do? If they can't come in and make sacrifice, if they can't have a physical relationship with you, and to physically come into your presence, what are they going to do? The divine reply was, I will then take one of their righteous men and retain him as a pledge on their behalf in order that I may pardon all their sins. What did we just teach Israel? Death of the righteous. What is this called in, in $9 terms? Substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. You're talking to an Orthodox Jew and he says that, that atonement stuff that you Christians do, no, no, no. You know, that Jesus died for your sins? That's a bunch of hooey. We don't believe that. We never have. Oh, really? Exodus Rabbah 35.4. Let him go find it on his shelf. Thus, too, it says, and he hath slain all that were pleasant to the eye, Lamentations 2.4, which is where the sage got that from. So they do believe it. They do believe in substitutionary atonement. So do we. Amen? Got that one? So that's from the Midrash Rabbah. Or, if you're Ashkenazi, the Midrash Rabbah. Right? Because they don't say... But we'll get into it. Okay. Second one. Berachot 62b. Berachot. What is that? It, it sounds like someone sneezed and you want to say gesundheit. What is that? Blessing. It is blessings. But what is this from? It is from the Talmud. In fact, it's from the Talmud Bavli. It's from the Babylonian Talmud 62b. That's the folio page. Okay. 
I'll read this one as well for those in Gastonia and parts afar off. At the height of the plague, an event and that should have been an avenging angel stretched his hand out towards Jerusalem. This is after David started numbering the people. You've read it. In order to destroy it, God showed mercy and commanded the angel to desist. The Gemara. What's the Gemara? It is the commentary, or better, give me a better word. The discussions, right? They're discussing it. This is what the what the uh, Mishnah, the oral law says. Let's talk about it. And we get the conversations going back and forth. Ken is exactly right, though. It's the commentary on the Mishnah. Because if we take the Mishnah, the oral law, and we put together the discussions that were in Babylon, we get the Babylonian Talmud. If we take the Mishnah, it's the oral law, and we put together the discussions that were done in actually Yavni, but we'll call it Jerusalem, we get the Jerusalem Talmud. And that's why we have two Talmuds, because we had two discussions in the two places where Jews were concentrated on the planet at that time. The Gemara expounds the verse that describes God's command. And he said to the angel who was destroying many, that's the word Rav in Hebrew, amongst the folk, now stay your hand. Rav Elazar said, the Holy One, blessed is he, said to the angel, take for me the Great One, that's also Rav, among them, for there is sufficient merit in him to exact payment from them for many of their sins. Now that's an extraordinary quote. If you keep reading, it says, in that hour, Avishai, the son of Zeruiah, died. That's probably Zeruiah. Anyway, who was equivalent in his greatness to the greater part of the Sanhedrin. So they got a great sage that died at that time, and they came up with this concept that they felt was consistent with the scripture. That if God takes a great one among them, it will be sufficient merit to exact payment. what What are we teaching here? Same thing. It's substitutionary atonement. He's going to take a great guy to cover the sins of everybody else. This is great because the great one, Rav, really works if you're talking about the great one. They may not recognize him as the great one, but since they're so famous for taking statements and kind of working them, we can work that one. I can work that one. Amen? Are you with me so far? So you got two. The first one was from the Midrash Rabbah, out of Exodus Rabbah, right? Specifically. This one was out of the Talmud, Barakot 62. The second one, or third one, and the last one, is also from the Babylonian Talmud, and I really like this one. Moed Katan 28a. Moed Appointed time, right? Katan. Small. Okay? This is actually a tractate of the Talmud. Now, I want you to know, gentlemen, that this is not just stuff on a screen. I got these books in the next room. If you want to open it up, you'll find blue highlighter stuff all around these three. It's right here. I have it in writing. 
another teaching about the death of Miriam. So they're all concerned about, you know, we get the death of Miriam, we get the death of uh, the Kohen Gadol, stuff like that. Another teaching about the death of Miriam. Rabbi Ami said, why is the death of Miriam juxtaposed to the passage about the para aduma? What's a para aduma? The red heifer. The, or, in our language, actually, probably the red cow. Right? Okay. So you're familiar with the, the burning of the red heifer and the ashes of the red heifer can be used to cleanse someone from tzara'at, or what we would call, incorrectly, leprosy. Uncleanness from death. That's exactly right. That is the only way. It is the only way. That's right. Good. So, um, so notice the sages. They're so familiar with the text. They're beyond what does the text say. Now they're looking at why does it say this right next to this. That's cool. It's almost as cool as saying why is there a space here. Let's see what the space means. Why is the death of Miriam juxtaposed to the passage about the para aduma? This serves to tell you that just as the para aduma provides atonement, so do the deaths of the righteous provide atonement. Who is righteous? Well, there's none righteous. No, not one. But we follow the righteous one. The death of the righteous provides atonement. What are we teaching here? Substitutionary atonement. Are you seeing a theme? Good. Rabbi Elazar said, Why is the death of Aaron juxtaposed to a mention of the Kohanic vestments, the, the really cool garments that the, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, wears? Well, he comes to the same conclusion. This tells you that just as the Kohanic vestments provide atonement on the Day of Atonement, because the high priest walks in in just his normal garb, Mikvah puts on the high priestly garments, goes in, does his deal, comes out. Mikvah puts on the regular white linen, goes in, does regular stuff. Mikvah again puts on his regular street clothes, right? This actually um, further expounds on the concept of atonement because the garments, um, it was the idea that basically, in the same sense in, in our society, like if you want to go meet the president, you probably shouldn't show up in your bathing suit. Yeah. You're going to go before the king of the universe. There were certain garments that were expected to be worn as, as a sign of respect, but also kind of like um, as as a as sort of a means of entrance. These are the minimum requirements, if you will, clothing attire-wise. So, in that sense, atonement is stretched out its full meaning to the idea of, as a covering. Exactly. Words, you're on your own, not quite good enough to merit this particular presence of the king. But dressed like this, okay, you're good enough now. And and we see this actually in the Book of Revelation, mm-hmm. right? The, the righteous saints, yes. Right. How did you get into this wedding feast and you don't have the right clothes on, bud? You're out of here. Or in Revelation, right? Who gives you those righteous white garments? Let me finish the quote. Kohanic vestments provide atonement, so do the deaths of the righteous provide atonement. It's exactly right. It's exactly right. right? Comments? Questions? That is a follow-up, sir. I was because you, a couple of you gentlemen, were wearing the white robes when we were here for you before. Yes. Um, it's more kind of extension. I wouldn't say it's the same concept necessarily. Yeah, it's it's the same concept. Yeah. It's it's not the same level or degree. Um, it's not a it? either. The, the white garment 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And there's, uh, was it three times that a man will wear his kittle, uh, the white garment, when he gets married? Um, on Passover. And on uh, Yom Kippur, if he's in charge, and when he's buried, he'll, he'll be buried. Um, just that whole white garment thing. The Orthodox community here in Charlotte, in your city, when a, a Jew dies, male or female, the body will never, ever, for even a moment, be left alone. There will always be someone with the body. They will wash the body. If it's male, it's men that are doing it. If it's a woman, it's women that are going to wash the body. And then they will dress the body in white linen. Just like it says in the apostolic writings. Hmm. And they will bury that person in those white garments. Yes, sir? Following up again on the whole atonement thing being kind of a broader concept, um, the idea of the, of the righteous suffering bringing atonement is extenuated, I think, even if I recall correctly, to issues like rain. Mm. I believe there's a legend or tradition that says that one rabbi, I think, during... The is this the one with the period, kidney stones or something? Kidney stones in great pain. Oh, yeah. And his pain was like... Sufficient. People sin so that way they could have rain. Yeah. Like, and the idea being not atonement in the sense of like eternal atonement, like we're thinking of, the sense that God blessed the people because someone else was suffering on their behalf. Amen. There are two types of rabbinic writings. One is agadic. One is halakhic. What is the difference? And what one of which did he just speak? Yes, Jonathan. That's you're telling a story to make a point. Exactly. Correct. Now, give me give me uh, a churchy example. What are we talking about? We're talking about a good Sunday school devotional story. There it is, right? A Sunday school flannel graph deal, right? That kind of thing. Talk to me about halakhic, not agadic. Halakhic is, is discusses exactly the process for walking out what that that uh, ruling is. Give me a three-letter word. Three-letter word. Three-letter shout. Did you just say cow? <laughs> it's not the why, it's the how. Halakhic. <laughs> One letter off. Yeah, so, two-thirds, 66% failing. Okay. So. That's because you learn from the sages. One letter off is a big deal. That's one. Yeah, it's another. Yeah. All right. That's right. So, yeah, so if we, if we look at the agadic literature of the sages, we see that they're constantly talking about the righteous suffering for the sake of the people. Constantly. I mean, they'll, they'll tell a story about a woman who uses her oven and lets everybody else use, in a town, use her oven and, you know, the fire that she's got under the oven. And then this fire breaks out and it torches all kinds of villages all around. But their village didn't get torched. Why? Because of her works. It's a cool concept, but it teaches us a greater truth about Messiah Yeshua. So, our, the goal here, when you're talking to Orthodox Jews, if you're talking to Reformed Jews, you're talking to conservative Jews, it's just like you're talking to pagans or Gentiles. They don't know the word any better than the pagans or the Gentiles. So, all bets are off. 
But if you're talking to the, to the Orthodox or the ultra-Orthodox Jew, they do know the Scriptures. And quite frankly, they know the Scriptures a whole lot better than we do. They also know the oral law a whole lot better than we do, which is not just trash. It does help us understand even things about the Master. It's very clear. He went a Sabbath day's journey. It says that. How far is the Sabbath day's journey? Well, if you don't read the Talmud, you don't know. Okay? And they know that you don't know. So let's not just ditch it, right? Let's not just ditch it because of that. So my, my point in this was, here you got three great examples that we should have memorized. You have to memorize the text. You have to memorize the references, right? You got two in the Talmud. You got one in the Midrash Rabbah. Comment. I was just going to say that it's important to, you know, when talk about reading Talmud and extra biblical sources, it's important to know exactly where we stand. That way, we can filter all of those things through that lenses. That way, we can we can sift out. Okay, well, this doesn't exactly line up with the Apostolic Scriptures, which is most of Kabbalah. Is there some good stuff in there? Sure. Is there, um, you know, a lot of Mystical hooey, sure. Sure. But the point is, knowing what we, is needing to know exactly what we believe so firmly that everything else, it, it, it's, it falls on one side of the fence or the other because we know exactly how to filter it. Excellent, excellent. Or as uh, my friend Alex puts it, Peter, would you get that? Um, you know, there's some great meat here that we should learn. We just need to be wise enough to spit out the bones. Now, if you're not far enough along in your walk, that you don't know the difference between the meat and the bones, don't read it. And I mean that. Don't read it. Get your butt in the Bible. You've got to know what the Scripture says, because that is what we believe. I believe that the Talmud has absolutely excellent, wonderful truths that we need to look at, and we need to struggle with, because it teaches how the sages said we should fulfill or walk out a particular command. And I think that's slightly different from the way that the Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox Jew would put it to you. They would say, you cannot keep the Torah without the oral Torah. You cannot, because there's just questions there. Now, why has that never come up in our lives? Because we, we have, we've disregarded it. We didn't care. Now that we care, we're like, gosh, Alex, how far is the uh, Sabbath day's journey? We should look that up. What did the sages say about that? What do you and I say about that? Right? Okay. We good? Comment. I got you. And why do we look at what the sages say as opposed to coming up with our own thing? It's the best we have. It is the best we have, and... What have they done but spent their whole life studying the Torah? That's it, right? Exactly right. As, as Mr. Upham puts it very well, it's the, the oracles of God are given to the Jews. Exactly right. Exactly right. Jeremy Cattell, he, he likes to say that, that you know, where there are things that we have questions, yeah, it is the best we have. That's right. And then he always follows up with when Messiah comes, he's going to set us straight. He'll set us straight. I like that. Yes. One quick um, warning on, on passages like this one. Um, keep in mind that when using a passage like this and talking with an Orthodox Jew, your goal more than anything is to get them to think. Do not expect necessarily that you're going to slam them on one of these and they're going to go, oh my goodness, I never saw that. Oh, you was the Messiah. Probably <laughs> Lower it. Yeah, it's probably not going to happen. It's 
especially if they've had any kind of anti-missionary training, they've got answers for some of these. Of course they do. So the, the smarter thing is, um, as we had experience with rabbis sitting in this couch not too long ago, give them something that they decide to, to dance around that question and maybe think about it later. Yeah. So and that's the, more the goal on trying to yeah. win the argument. I, I think your point is well taken. We're not out to convince them. We just want to get them to think. And let God work on their heart. If they know the Torah, God will work on their heart. Because those truths will become self-evident. No question about it. But if you've got a Jew, Orthodox or otherwise, telling you that this whole substitutionary, Jesus died for your sins, are you nuts? The Torah doesn't teach that. Oh, really? Well, if you start quoting... You know, name your church father. They're going to get glassy-eyed because they don't care. You start quoting Rabbi Elazar out of the Talmud, at least you've got their attention. And it's going to get them to stop and think. Something happened in your lives that caused you to stop and think and look at the Word of God and say, Oh my goodness. If I'm supposed to walk... In the footsteps, halakha, of my Savior, and he was an Orthodox Jew, is it so odd that I would look and act like an Orthodox Jew? Something happened in each one of you to cause you to stop and think like that. Can't the same thing happen to the Jew? that they would stop and think and at least put on hold all the noise out there that we put on hold from the professing Christendom to say, well, wait a second. Wait a second. I've got a bunch of questions here. Same thing that they need to do. And quite frankly, since they are much more close-knit than we are and they actually care about one another much more than we do, it's really difficult for them to put the noise at bay. That change of mentality that you just referred to is sort of the whole point of that book on your table over there. It's exactly right. It's exactly right. These, this gospel was written specifically to take the Greek text, match it with the Septuagint, and come back and turn the English, or turn the Greek into Hebrew, so that the Jew would be willing to read it as his own. Okay. We talked last week about stringing pearls, and I don't think a lot of you have any clue what I'm talking about. So I want to talk about what stringing pearls are. Basically, when we string pearls, we're comparing texts based on commonality. There's something in common with two different texts, and we're going to kind of compare them. It could be a word or a phrase that's in common between both. The righteous do this, the righteous do that. God's going to do this when he comes back. God's going to do that when he comes back. And we start to compare things. It could be a truth or a concept. And we're just going to follow this through. It could be a geographical location. I love hearing, and and your father is so good at this, where, where Isaac was potentially sacrificed, or did get sacrificed, whatever it is, that's the same place that that temple was built. 
this that David did is the same place that, you know, and you start naming the, all the stuff that happened in that place. That's amazing. That's the same kind of thing. Um, a timing marker. Maybe it's a time of day, a, a day, a month. It could be a moed, right? A, a moed. An appointed time. Good, good. Or a festival or a feast. Good. Or, you know, if you really got, want to get way out and crazy, it could be a, numeric, a numeric value of a book, right? Uh, of, a, of a word, right? Not that it's crazy. Um, or the sages are good. What do we call that? A gamatria, right? A gamatria. So we, we take the numerical value, because every letter's got a number, right? And we add up the value of this word, and we compare it now with this completely different word, because they get the same value. I find that, I'm just telling you personally, I find that to be like on the low end of the totem pole, almost without value in my mind. Although, some of the coolest things come out of that. And there's nothing wrong with saying, wow, that's really cool. God's a genius. Who knew that that would work out like that? Right? Now, am I going to build halakha? Am I going to build doctrine? Am I going to change my life because of it? Probably not, but it really is pretty cool. I think it's really cool how a lot of these are pretty much the same criteria by which the haftarot are chosen. That's exactly right. And what, uh, what he's saying is, for every Torah portion, the sages sat down. They were all, all the sages were all in the same room, in the same place, all at the same time, and they chose... No. Um, the sages chose... A particular prophet reading to match up or go with every Torah portion. Did you ever wonder how they do that? Johnny's right. They did it based on this. There was something there that they wanted to make sure the people heard. Because that was their goal. To teach the people. So they would use these common things. They would string pearls. So what's the concept of stringing pearls? Well, I start with a text. And then I string another pearl on there that brings you to a different text. And I'm connecting it in some way, shape, or fashion. And then another one, and another one. So in the end, I can take the first pearl, and perhaps the last pearl, and say, did you, did you get it? You got it? Okay. Um, this is primarily how we've come up with our doctrines about eschatology. Study of the end times, right? This is how that happens, right? Because we string together the sequential information about what will happen when Messiah returns. Okay? Yes? It is sort of like a mosaic. I was actually in a Baptist church once, and I gave a similar talk, but I didn't use stringing pearls or anything uh, Hebrew or Old Testament, as I recall. And I was teaching the same kind of concept, just using, of course, the apostolic scriptures, and, uh, which I didn't call the apostolic scriptures at the time. And this very, very old, wrinkled, tiny, shrunk-down woman said, it's a mosaic! And I lost it. I just, you know, being from New York, I had never heard anyone talk like that. And I lo- for several minutes, I was tears coming down. I just, oh yeah, it was, it was a sad deal. All right, put on your thinking caps. Put on your thinking caps. Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27. This is known as the Emmaus Road passage. It is near and dear to my heart because it's actually what got me and my family into this walk of the Torah. Why? Because I'm a Bible teacher. I'm a Bible student first, I hope. And a Bible teacher. What I do is what I'm doing right now. Now, I may not be very good at it. 
that's not the point. But the bottom line is, there's normally people sitting and I'm standing up. Alas, you who lack knowledge and whose hearts are too heavy to believe all that the prophets have spoken, did not the Mashiach have to bear all these things and to be brought into his glory? Then he began with Moshe and all the Nevi'im, the prophets, and explained to them all of the scriptures that spoke about him. I read those verses and thought to myself, who do I think I am? I know the last 27% of this Bible pretty well. But the first 78% or whatever it is, I, I couldn't do that. Can you do that? I couldn't do that. Now my next slide was going to be every single prophecy about Yeshua all over the place just to impress you. And I thought, well, I don't need to do that because you probably know them all anyway. You can probably do them in alphabetical order. I can't, but um, that is what caused me to get into the Tanakh, right? Or Genesis uh, to Second Chronicles. That's exactly right. I think we're getting a bunch of emails. We'll just turn that off so you don't have to be distracted. What's the concept? Yes, sir. It's, it's amazing. He was a master at it. Why was he a master at it? He was an Orthodox Jewish student about to become a rabbi. And the inspiration of There's no question. There's no question about that. But he knew the book. And God used the fact that he knew the scriptures. It is amazing. Why do we in professional Christendom normally miss these things? It's a different method of teaching that we inherit. Okay, that's one. It's a different method that we're not used to, and many times people would dismiss. Second. Well, we disregard it. We dis. The Tanakh and say, well, that was then, this is now, so I don't need to know that stuff. Because we've done that, third, we can't relate to it. We don't know it. We just don't know it. So there's, it doesn't have any applicability. By the way, do you realize that, unless your study Bible put that in small caps, you would probably have no idea it was a quote from the, from the Tanakh anyway? Right? That, shame on us. Shame on us. Absolutely. Wow. Acts chapter 7. Yeah. Yeah. He, he just... Doom, 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 doom. Hebrews 11. Same deal. Yes, absolutely. Well, not only, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Not only do they not 
do they not care, but they get angry. I mean, I, I mean, because of you guys and Jeremy, I, I don't know if you guys know, but I actually teach a Sunday school class at a church, and I actually taught Deuteronomy last spring from January to June, and I used this stuff, and I was basically almost kicked out of the church, I had many phone calls, and it wasn't because... It was just because they were angry. They're like, you can't tell us that stuff. It's like, I'm not. This is telling you. Know? And, and, and so it's like, why are you mad? Why are you screaming at me? And th- that's what I don't understand is that the, is that they it's not that they it's not that they aren't taught and they don't care, they get angry. Why, <laughs> why do they get angry? Guilt. Well it's because they What is the guilt? There's two choices. They wanna know they don't wanna know. If you're sitting here, my assumption is you want to know the truth more than you want to be right. How many of you have been right today? Okay, maybe one or two. Okay. How many of you have changed your opinion on a whole bunch of biblical stuff over the past 10 years? Right? Amen. There we go. That's why we're here. We feel your pain. But I love it. Absolutely. It's not a way. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. You're a great company. All right. I think there's also just a misperception uh, of some of the stuff in the New Testament about the abolishment of the law. That On whom would you put this, Chris? Well, it's clearly the, the church is the, the Who in the church? What? Oh. Give me a biblical word. Give me a better bi- biblical word. <laughs> who does who does James say it is? The teachers. And the scripture is very clear, both in the Tanakh and the Apostolic Scriptures. You are being raised in this room to be the teachers. If there's somebody that needs a word from the scriptures, you stand up. That's what you're here for. But when you do. You better do it in humility and recognize that when you open that big mouth, that foot should not be what goes in it. Let the Word of God come out. Amen? Amen. Because when it doesn't, we hold a greater condemnation. That's true. And that's really what God got upset with. He got upset with His priests, first and foremost. Why? What was their number one job? To teach the people the difference between clean and unclean. And I mentioned it in the prayer before we started. Tamay? Tamay? Unclean. And Tahor? Okay? Has nothing to do with sin. It's just clean and unclean. That was their primary job. The Levite's primary job. Administer the services in the temple. Help the temple guys, which were the priests. Second? They had two secondary jobs. One was sing. Second, guard. They had to make sure guys like us didn't get inside. Don't let any Gentiles get in here. You know, passing out the Uzis to the, to the Levites, they're walking the line. I mean, you read about it. You read about it in the scriptures. They were the ones that needed to protect and guard the sanctity of the temple. Why? Who's behind the curtain? 
he is. Amen. So he has a lot to say about that, and he's really bothered by it. Jeremiah is a big deal there, right? Because when he moves from the from the uh, prophet, from the uh, priests and the Levites, they're, they're sort of taken together. He then moves on to the prophets, right? The prophets are supposed to speak for him and speak only his word, and they don't. Okay, good, very good comments, guys. Very good comments. I'm in Acts chapter 17, the first three verses. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis, Amphipolis, thank you, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. We got to stop. Can you tell me, what is the Greek word in the apostolic scriptures for synagogue? It is not. This one is actually synagogue. What does synagogue mean? An assembly. It's an assembly of the Jews. What do we call that? A synagogue. That's okay. This one's okay. So, it's an assembly of people. What kind of people? Jews. So, what are we going to say? Well, it's a synagogue of the Jews. What does this imply? By definition... There's synagogues of non-Jews. Have you ever heard that in the church? I don't think so. Okay. There was a synagogue of the Jews. Okay. And according to Shaul's custom, that means he did it more than once, he went to them and for three Shabbatot reasoned with them from Plato. No, it's not what it says. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. What was he doing? Explaining and giving evidence. I think he was remembering this Luke passage we just looked at. That the Mashiach had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Doesn't this sound exactly like what Yeshua did with these two schmoes on the road to Emmaus? Why were they schmoes? What? They were leaving before... The festival was over. Do they get a buy? Do they get a buy? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Why? Nope. No, that's what does the scripture say? Come up to Jerusalem for Pesach, unleavened bread, right? How long is it? Seven days. You stay there the whole time, then you can go home. Now, it's only going to be a month and a half or so, 50 days, and you got another one, Shavuot. It's also a pilgrimage festival. So, they're supposed to be there for seven days. What day is he on the road to a mass? Do you guys read the Bible? I mean, you read the Bible, right? What day is it? Day three. All right, what day is that? I'm like, I like the first day of the week. Yeah, it's the first day of the week, right? He's risen. First day of the week. Okay. Right? It's Sunday. He's on the road to Emmaus. He just kind of shows up. So he starts walking with them. You know? And they're lamenting. Oh, bummer. Man, thought he was the Mashiach. Look, there's another one. Just did another one. Bites the dust. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. Another one. But yeah, right? So he said, well, what are you talking about? What? Are, you only, are you the only guy here? That hadn't heard about what's happened? Oh, it's this great guy. It's Yeshua. And, you know, we thought he was the Mashiach. Well, you know, the Romans killed him. Holy cow. Man, it's a bummer. 
And that's when he comes up with that quote. He spends the rest of the time walking to Emmaus. Right? Why do they get a buy? Because the ruling halacha, the ruling ordinances for their walk from the elders in that day came not from Hillel, but from Shammai. And he had ruled, you only have to be there for the first day of the festival, and then you can book. I know this religious stuff is a real pain in the neck, and it messes with your business. That's okay. Just come up for the first day. You're here. You see the family. You make a sacrifice. And you're on your way. And that's what they did. They came for the first day, and then they started going home after Shabbat. Well, you can't travel on Shabbat, right? So they came up for the first day of the festival, and then they went home. That is a perfect example, I think, of the uh, appropriate use and limit of the Talmud, is to establish the historical context of the scriptures, Sabbath day's journey. Yeah. But it doesn't say from the Talmud or Plato, in terms of arguing who the Mashiach is. Without question. So <coughs> yes. whenever we, unintentionally, we can, if we're not careful, overemphasize the fact that their Jews and the oracles of God were given to them, the inspired oracles of God. But the Jews themselves do not say that the oral Torah came by divine inspiration, just to rehearse. They say it came basically in the flesh down from men. No, actually they say it does come from inspired. They say it was given to Moses on the mountain. But not that each of these men were inspired writers of the oral. They didn't write the oral Torah. That's why it's called the oral Torah. Well, ultimately, then more to my point, you know, when it was written down, that they were not written down in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's correct. And so we have to be extremely careful because there's, a, there's what I would call, in Messianic communities, there's like a reverse anti-Semitism. I'll call it anti-churchitism that happens, okay? Where the apostolic writings come up for grabs in terms of discussing, reasoning from the scriptures who the Mashiach is. So we just have to be real careful that we don't make the reverse fleshly reaction, you know, flesh, that's what it is, because we're so mad at what the church has done and deceiving us from our traditions that we've inherited. I think that's true. So that's just something Let's make sure that we understand that the Mishnah is not what the true Jew would believe is the oral Torah. The oral Torah was pressed down orally, and they did the best they could to write it down. And your average concert B-flat Orthodox Jew will tell you it's the best they've got. It's not the oral Torah. It's as simple as that. Now, inspiration? We, we have no idea. Did Moses actually receive that orally from God and pass it on orally to Joshua and pass it on orally? But that's up for grabs. We know this is. And the bottom line is they got a buy going down away, because that was the ruling halakha of the day. Was it right? Of course it wasn't right. But they were obedient to their elders. That's right. Who gets, who gets the burn, not the buy? The, the teachers. The teachers. The teachers were wrong. And in this case, Shammai. Which is why on Shabbat we say, like Hillel, and not like Shammai. Yes? You sort of answered the question, Yes. Yes. Pesach being the seven-day festival. Yes. According to the written Torah, and they should have been there for all seven days. It's implied, and it's been, and Hillel said that, 
which the master agreed with most of the time and halachically has been changed and they agree with that now. So, they should have stayed for the festival, right? If you're going to go up for the festival, how could you leave in the middle of the festival? It just makes no sense. All right, so, explaining, giving evidence that the Mashiach had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Yeshua whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Mashiach. Now, I got to tell you, I don't think most of us ever do this. I really don't. We come up with logic arguments. We come up with cosmic arguments. We come up, I mean, I can go through all the different various arguments we come. There is a God. He's wonderful. He cares about you. He's got a personality. He's intelligent. He's an intelligent being. We come up with everything. You know, all this stuff. What did, what did he do? He got with Jews who knew the scriptures and from the scriptures demonstrated and gave evidence that this Yeshua is the Mashiach. If you can't do that, I just don't know why you would spend time reading other books until you can do that. Amen. That's exactly what it is. Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 12. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into, son of a gun, the synagogue of the Jews. (laughs) Now, these, that would of course be the Bereans, were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. Why? Two reasons. Catch them. Two. One, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Two things. One, they received it eagerly. Here's a guy talking about the scriptures. Wow, that's cool. Let's hear you, brother. Go. But second and more important, they examined the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Yes, sir. Exactly. That's my point tonight. Yes. And there's an opposite. There's two different responses as well. Because one response would be, oh, that doesn't sound right. So you go find evidence of why it's wrong, and you see so you're you're approaching scripture that way. Or you go and go, that was a really interesting point, and I've never thought of it that way. I wonder what else the Bible says about that. Mm-hmm. Because you can have two different outcomes. That's exactly right. I mean, it really comes down to what we just talked about. Do I know the truth? Do you want to be right? Absolutely. Than Romans at that Absolutely. Point. So, yeah, I certainly wouldn't start with the apostolic scriptures if I'm talking to a Jew. 
I mean, it was just completely inappropriate. And I don't have to. How do I know? Do what Yeshua did, and then do what Shaul did, copying what Yeshua did. I don't have to go to the apostolic scriptures to convince a Jew, a Jew, not a Gentile, a Jew, that Yeshua, it, is that the same thing? Yeah, it's the previous one, that Yeshua is the Mashiach. And I should be able to do that. Now, once I've got him there, there's a whole new world I can open up, and this is a great copy of the Gospels to give them. Yes, sir. To so bounce off what Greg was saying, it's really important to handle it in such a way that we don't present our case, as it were, in such a way that we put, create deal breakers between people in our relationships. It's like, oh, suddenly, you know, I don't put up a Christmas tree. Oh, uh, I don't want to sit at the same table as him at lunch or something like that. So mm-hmm. it, it's just really important. I don't want to let that fall by the wayside or under, be understated. Well, I think that's wise. But I think there is one deal breaker that we should be willing to break the deal over. Oh, sure. What is it? Identity of Messiah. There it is. That's the deal breaker. Right? I'm, that's the one thing that I'm just not going to give on. I would say identity. It, to me, that they are the same. They are the same. Yes, sir. Exactly. I, you know, my dad was a fireman. I think of the, the ladder motif, right? You know, he taught me how to climb a fireman's ladder fast. And unlike most of you virile and large men, I was a small man when I was a young lad. So, you know, when we had these fireman competitions... You know, there'd be four, five, six firemen running with a ladder, and they'd plant that sucker on the ground, and they'd have me on the top rung running with it. So when they planted it and threw it up, I was already at the top. (laughs) But the neat part is that every one of those guys that just ran with the ladder had to follow me up the ladder. And if it's a skinny ladder, it's pretty clear there's one way, and we're going that way. And you can say, if you're on a ladder, follow me as I follow him. Where else is he going to go? All right. So we see the two things that made these guys, at least in Luke's mind, more noble. They were eager to receive the word. And secondly, they were examining the scriptures. So I want to talk about that. How were they examining the scriptures. First of all, I think the question needs to be just made clear, especially to those that are listening uh, in far-off places. What scriptures were they examining? Is there any question in your mind <laughs> what scriptures these Bereans had? The Tanakh. The Tanakh. They had the Tanakh. For the uneducated, for those that are you know, from Gastonia, what is the Tanakh? The Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible. Help me out. From Genesis, the law of the prophets and the writings, or the or Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms is the way the Master put it. Now, why would he call the Psalms instead of the writings? It's the largest book in the writings. It's just a moniker. Why would he call it Moses and not the Torah or the law? Moses wrote it. Now, there's some people that don't believe that. Bet they're not Jews. <laughs> All right, so it was the Tanakh that was being examined. Secondly, 
Why would they examine the Scriptures? These Bereans were daily examining the Scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. By the way, why would they be examining the Scriptures daily? Unless they were in the synagogue more than just on Shabbat. That Aliyah that you read each day is actually done in the synagogue. And you pray with men in the synagogue. Yes? Put yourself in their position. Mm -hmm. In in this time, this is 30, 35, 40 years after the death of Messiah, Yeshua, and and there's a lot been going on. And and there's, it's like, you know, people have, you know, this kind of word spreads. Yeah. Wow, this guy said he's the Messiah, and this is a big deal. Mm-hmm. So it it, it's, it only makes sense that they would want to know what signs to, to seek. Yeah, good. I don't know if it was that long after, and I don't know if the word spread. But whether it did or didn't, both things are very valid. If they heard about it, they'd want to know. They're definitely hearing about it from him, so they want to know. It sounds to me that they're Good. They, they have expectations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Good. Yes, Jeremy. It's a commandment. To... No, it's a commandment? Come on, help me. Where do you see a commandment? What am I supposed to do? In Deuteronomy. Yeah. Where in Deuteronomy? Uh, 13. Good. Good. What are they checking? Uh, the validity of uh, him as a messenger. Why? So, they won't, so they're not led astray. They ah. understand that if, 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 so it's actually a mitzvah. This guy comes in and says, this guy is the Messiah. And he starts showing them the proofs from the Scripture. Why would he have to show them screws, truths and proofs from the Scripture? Because they're going to check them. they got to make sure that it lines up. With what? With Moses. With Moses. With the Torah. Good. Yes. That's exactly right. That's actually what Deuteronomy 13 says. Do you love me? If I send a guy who tries to lead you astray, are you going to follow him? It says he does it. All right. So, we know why they would examine the Scriptures. What methodology do you suppose they used to examine the Scriptures? How'd they do it? Strong's conclusions? Yeah. You know... (laughs) That, that was, you know, I started listing every way that I would do it, and every stinking one on my bullet points was completely unavailable to them. Okay, so they'd use accordance, and they'd just do a, a word search, right? Okay, they wouldn't do that. Okay, so they, yeah, the blue letter Bible, right? They go on the internet. Nope. You know, how would they do it? The big thing would be something similar to this, where you have a room full of guys. Yes. We've all spent their entire lives reading the scriptures or hearing it, memorized huge chunks, if not all of it. Yep. And they're bouncing stuff off each other. And he said this. No, he didn't say that. He meant this way. Oh, I agree. I don't think it was that. I think it was this. I mean, you read, that's basically what the Talmud is. Oh, but you guys saying, no, no, no. Yes, yes, baby. Yeah. Yeah. And in addition to that, clearly from the text, we know they were reading the Scripture. They were reading the Scriptures. They weren't reading the Talmud. There was no Talmud. Did you hear that? There was no Talmud. There wasn't a Talmud until 300 of the Common Era when the Mishnah was written. Or later. 
This is in the first century. There was no Talmud. They had the oral Torah that told them how to walk out the commands. They had elders that were telling them how they should walk out the commands in each community. But there was no Talmud. They're reading the scriptures. And they're checking to see if what he says lines up. Guys, I don't know if you recognize it. I don't know if you realize. This is monumental. How many people on the planet do you personally know could actually do that today? No computer. A handwritten scroll. One book at a time. (laughs) Sam. Didn't you read that the other day? I think it was in that ninth scroll. Remember that? Yeah. On the, no, the other page. Yeah, that's the one. Have you still got that with you, or did you give that to Hank? Yeah. <laughs> like you said, they got to have it memorized. There's no highlighters. There's no highlighters, right. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Let me go in the margins and see what the, what the footnote is. Yeah, right. I guess the success of all that was no television. That's right. No television. <laughs> Or the, you know, every bird mentioned the in the Torah. Of the entire Torah. Yeah. You know, so they were deeply ingrained. And then and I think they were passing on what they had heard from it in the past. Sure. But I think as far as the stringing pearls thing, that's a topic here, that's the primary use, I would think, as to how they're figuring out the teachings of the Messiah. Because if you look at <coughs> the scriptures, there's actually very, very, very little that's explicit about Messiah at all. And so you get to the apostolic scriptures. So, but fact, you can string those pearls through every one of those those prophets. In fact, that's in commenting on one of the things that the Rabbi who sat with us not too long ago commented about. He was challenging the idea of the deity of Messiah, basically saying you have no proof. You have a bunch of myth- mystical concepts from the Tanakh, and that's all you can point to. Okay, you had a hand here of God, and what does that mean? But I would say that the, the argument is almost the same with Messiah. You have to string together a concept that's spread out throughout the entire book to get a full picture. Yes. It's not enough to just say, well, I, w- I want one passage that summarizes everything. Yeah, exactly right. So to turn the argument on him, so you've sold the rope that you can then hang him with, right? Wait a minute. If you want to diss this idea, what are you going to do with this? Good. Excellent. Exactly right. And now he's going to... Start stringing pearls. Good. He hit it. So it's, it's amazing that, you know, how that works. Okay. So, so, I think the methodology in a nutshell would be the stringing of the pearls and the knowledge of the Word of God. And guys, I can't tell you how important that is. These are men of the book. We should be men of the book. I am really, really good at quoting movies. I can, there are some movies, I can give every stinking line. That's shameful. I mean, really. It really is. What, I mean, really, what does, it, what does it mean? What does it mean? It means that, from a stewardship perspective, I should be ashamed. Because I spent my youth watching movies and memorizing commercials instead of memorizing the Torah. Well, you know what? I'm running short on time, guys, because I'm older than most of you, if not all of you, especially tonight, right? I think I'm older than all of you. So I'm concerned 
And I beg you, don't waste time. Memorize the Scripture. You can't do that if you're not spending time in it. Okay. What would be the result if they found Torah-based evidence against Shaul's claims? They would not fear him. If they're in a Torah community, they would stone him. The Thessalonians simply chucked him out, but we know they didn't check the scriptures. They just didn't like what he said. But let's be careful, right? You know, you, you hear the, the, you know, what's the normal response when you first come into the Torah walk? Uh, you know, are you going to start stoning your kids now? You know, are you, you going to start sacrificing goats in the backyard? What are you going to do there, you know? Uh, it's, your, it's your Torah duty, right? You've got to kill those things. Yeah. Yeah. Especially the Bereans wouldn't take one man's uh, accounts. They, they would have a multitude of witnesses who you bet. experienced it as well. You bet. It would, it would be a big ordeal. Yeah, an outright rejection of everything he had to say. And, like, okay, anyone following this guy, do not listen to them. That's exactly right. Yeah. And it, and, it, and it could get to the point where there, it would be a legal thing of taking him back to Jerusalem, get him from the Sanhedrin, you know, that kind of deal. Well, wasn't it uh, five times show to stripes? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. exactly right. Okay. Good, 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 good. Bottom line. What was God's protection for Yisrael with regard to false prophets? He knew they'd come. His word. He knew they would come. He told them they would come. And he told them how to deal with it. You need to know what I said. If you don't, you'll be led astray. Are we clear? Questions, comments? I think that, that that right there, in addition to all the time spent in Babylon for uh, you know, idolatry being a, a large part of it, that, I think that those are those are big reasons right there that have just kind of been long ingrained in, in why those are big deal for Jews today. Like, who is the Messiah? Okay, we're not going to touch this Jesus guy. Because we heard some stuff about it, and then, okay, and then the whole concept of idolatry—that I mean, that's huge. Yeah. When you talk to Jews, I, idolatry is big. Idolatry is big. Why? For them. Why? Well, it would be meaning that there's you're placing another god over. Okay. But why is it big? For them. The golden calf is number one. Number two. <laughs> they got kicked out of the land. Hello. This is big. When they came back out of captivity, that's right about here in the middle of this wall, they came back. They came back with a vengeance to keep the commandments, to know them and to keep them. That's why they're called the men of the great assembly. Not because it was big. Not because there was a lot. We know there wasn't. Most people stayed in Babylon. Sad. Why were they great? Because they were adamant. We're not going to let this happen again. Yes, sir. Question. Um, I'm sorry, we're all out of time for questions. Thank you all for coming. <laughs> oh, I'm only kidding. Yes, go ahead. Uh, again, Leo, when he was uh, speaking with the Sanhedrin, yes. he 
caution them mm -hmm. be careful not to do too much evil to these guys. The, these guys who were preaching about Yeshua being the Messiah. Is it possible that he had in mind that they were going to the Torah and they were going to the writings and what they were saying about Yeshua? Because he says, you know, if what they say is true, you're in danger of fighting against God himself. Yes. So, as we've been discussing this and looking to the scriptures to prove Yeshua's Messiahship, I'm wondering if Gamaliel would had this in mind as he was giving his counsel. What is the number one thing going through Gamaliel's head as this whole Yeshua argument is raised? He trusts his student. His number one top student has done what? The guy that was going to take Gamaliel's place gave up that opportunity and became the apostle to the Goyim, the Gentiles. That would be Shaul himself. Yeah, I, um, I like to think that Gamaliel eventually came to understand and know Yeshua as a Messiah. But, you know, who knows, right? Who knows? It would be great if that were the case. But we don't know. Alright, we're going to take a break right here. Not because I'm done, but because I can see that your butts are tired and you need to stand up, move around a little bit, get some coffee, take a breather. We'll come back and we'll finish out this hour in about 10-15 minutes and then we'll get on to our next hour, which has to do with blood.